If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it to Psalm 36, and if you want to use the, the Bible right smack in front of you or maybe underneath the chair in front of you, if you want to turn to page 465, you should be where it is. It carries over a little bit, but you'll start on 465. Now, as I ask you to turn to a Bible and we get ready to kind of focus our attention on God's Word this morning, I want to ask you to ponder three questions to kind of get started, kind of get our minds there. So, the first question is this, what is the best way to approach life so that you can experience the best way to live? Okay? What's the best way to approach life so you and I can experience the best way to live? Now, that's a very broad question, so maybe we need to zoom it in. So let me give you questions two and three to kind of zoom it in, okay? Question two would be this. What is the wise way to live life? And maybe another way to say that, ask that question, so I'm going to give you a question two and two A, I guess, would be to say, what are things that I should be remembering or focusing on as I live life? And then question three What approach to life will lead me to satisfaction? Like, how should I approach life so I get satisfied? There's satisfaction out of life. Now, we could probably ask those questions at any time. They're probably not bad questions to ask at any moment, but we're asking them this morning because we want to walk through Psalm 36. Now, as we said sometimes before, when you come to a psalm, sometimes we know why David wrote it or another person wrote it, the background. But in this case, we don't know the background of the psalm. We don't know what it was that caused David to write it. But it seems like as you read through this psalm that David is providing sort of two different, very different answers to those questions, okay, as to why you would want to focus on one thing or focus on another or why you'd look here for satisfaction or there for satisfaction. Now, what we want to do this morning is walk through the psalm. And just so you know, I'm just going to tell you exactly now the the structure of the message, the structure of the psalm, really simple. David's going to talk about option number one that he looks at. Then he's going to say, here's option number two. And then he ends the psalm by basically, in essence, praying, offering a prayer to help us align with the option David believes is right. So that's what we're going to do this morning, those three things in the next three hours or so, okay? Option number one, okay? Option number one would be sin or ignore God. Okay, the first option that David brings up, the first choice you could make in terms of the focus of your life, you could focus your life on sin, David is going to say, or on ignoring God. Now, that may not be what you would have expected the Bible to say, hey, here's an option of life, you should do this one, as if it's offering it up. But that's really what the first four verses of Psalm 36 do, that kind of takes us in that direction. Now, let me state something very obvious. If you're going to walk through Psalm 36, you probably need to start with verse 1. But I need to tell you something about verse 1. Verse 1, at least the first sort of half of verse 1, is one of the hardest passages in the Old Testament to translate from Hebrew to English. Okay? So I'm going to read from the ESV. That's the Bible we use here. That's what I preach from. Let me read verse 1, and then I'll kind of unpack a little bit. Okay, so verse 1 begins this way, transgressions speak to the wicked deep in his heart. 
There's no fear of God before his eyes. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, whether paper or electronic, you should probably see a little footnote around the words, his heart. The reason it has that is because most of the manuscripts we have of the Old Testament in the Hebrew language that it was originally written in, and then other translation languages of it, instead of saying his heart, they'll have the word my heart. Now, that's just one of the issues that complicates the translation of this verse. If you have a different English Bible with you, or maybe some of you have multiple ones on your device, you'll see it's translated differently because everyone wrestles with it. Now, I'm reasonably confident that no one came this morning hoping to have a, like, basically a lecture on different approaches of translating Hebrew words. I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I don't think anyone came here for that this morning. So rather than me read all the different English translations and explain to you all of why different ones went in the direction they did, let me just read one other one okay, from an Old Testament scholar by the name of Alan Ross that's a fairly wooden translation, almost taking the Hebrew word order literally and and put it out there, but the first half of the verse, okay, that one reads this way. An oracle of the transgression of the wicked is in the midst of my heart. Now, that may still be fuzzy, and so let me add a little bit of clarity. What is verse 1, the first little bit of verse 1 trying to tell us? David, I think, is telling us that God was offering David some insight into what the wicked were like. I mean, you could say in a sense that God was telling David, David, this is how wicked people approach life. This is their focal point. This is how they go. Now, when you and I hear the word wicked, we might be tempted to say, hey, the wicked people, those are people that do off the charts evil, terrible things, like really bad folks. Well, that might be true, except if you were to look at Romans chapter 3, verse 18, you would find out in that verse, Paul is describing people who need the Lord Jesus, who need the Savior, and you know where he quotes from? In Psalm, from which Psalm he quotes from in that verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 18? Psalm chapter 36 and verse 1. In essence, when the Bible talks about being wicked, it's really talking about every person who needs the Savior, which means you and I are being described in Psalm chapter 36 and verse 1. All of us need the Savior. Now, what exactly is it that David has God, what has God revealed to David? Look again at verse 1, okay? Transgression speaks to the deep, the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, what God reveals to David What he's telling David is there are people who have no fear of God in their eyes. So a wicked person, biblically, if we're going to talk about what is a wicked person, a wicked person is someone who believes he or she does not need God. In essence, they're saying my life in no way, I'm wicked when my life is, I'm no way is my life dependent on God. I can live life without God. I don't need God. I can do this thing and it really doesn't matter if God is around or involved. I can do this. 
And you say, if you choose that approach to life, what does it lead to? Because David's saying, that's an approach to life. What does it lead to? Well, David's going to tell us it leads to three things in verses two to four. Okay, thing number one it's going to lead to is it's going to lead to us flattering ourselves, us thinking we're really impressive. Okay, look at verse two with me, Psalm 36. For, you'll see why I got the word flatters, okay? For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. When we approach life thinking we don't need God, we begin to get this attitude, this perspective that, you know what? We're pretty good. We've got it figured out. Which functionally means, hey, I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. So my sin, my iniquity, it really doesn't matter. In essence, I can be selfish and it's good because I've got it figured out. Look at how impressive I am. When we begin to ignore God, that's where David says we're going to go. We're going to flatter ourselves and figure we got this all handled. Thing number two, not only do we flatter ourselves, but then, folks, where this is going to lead to if we ignore God is we will be out of touch with reality. We're going to be out of touch with reality. You know, I think it's really easy for any of us to flatter ourselves. I mean, anytime we think that we have the best idea and everybody needs to listen to us, we've opened the door to that temptation. We've opened the door to us kind of elevating and thinking we've got it all figured out. But just because you flatter yourself, just because you think you're right, that doesn't mean it corresponds in any way with reality. Look at what verse 3 of Psalm 36 says. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. If we're flattering ourselves, kind of elevating ourselves up, thinking, wow, aren't we impressive? What we are doing is we are setting ourselves up for trouble and deceit. In essence, trouble and deceit, that comes out of our mouths. That becomes our contribution to life. David wants us to see this, if, if my approach to life is, hey, I'm wise, I don't need God, I've got it all figured out, there's a temptation to do that, but quite honestly, that doesn't line up with reality, because we don't have it all figured out. Because see, if you are ceasing to act wisely, you're removing yourself from reality. You're operating apart from reality. And if you operate that way, good's going to be absent from what you bring to other people. You're not going to be offering anything. You're going to be bringing a disaster. You're going to operate in danger. Please don't miss the point of verse 3. When you and I remove God from our lives, things are going to begin to emerge in our lives, trouble and deception. And not only are they going to be in our lives, but then they're going to spill over into other people's lives. Instead of offering good to someone, we're offering them trouble. We're offering them lies and damage. Thing number three, David says, comes from a life that's about ignoring God is we will plot trouble. We're not just satisfied with kind of having trouble in our lives. We're, we're going to want to add to it. We're going to make plans to expand it. Verse 4 of Psalm 36 says this, he plots trouble while he's on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. 
If we don't have the fear of God in our eyes, we're going to be setting a course that's not good. We're going to be trying to figure out how to add more and more stuff, more and more evil. Which means instead of rejecting evil, saying, no, you don't want to go there, we're going to be embracing it. And we're going to be trying to get it into other people's lives. Now, I kind of get the sense at this point that David's not exactly high on this option. He's not saying this is a good approach to life. He's not saying this should be your focal point. So you have to ask the question, why does he even mention it then? I mean, if it's not a good idea, why does he put it in front of us? I mean, we're in church on a Sunday morning. We're like, not like the heathens that are riding their bikes, you know. I mean, we're good, nice, smart people. Why would David even put this in front of us? Because we would never pick it. We would never go there. I want you to go back to verse 1 with me again. And I want you to look with me again. And unfortunately, you don't have it literally in front of you. It'll be on the screen. Alan Ross's version of verse 1, the first part of verse 1. Okay? An oracle of the transgression of the wicked is in the midst of my heart. Now, an oracle, okay, the Hebrew word that is translated oracle, is a prophetic message given with divine authority on a subject. Okay, so whatever is being communicated here is something God says you need to know with His authority. And what's the message God wants communicated? Transgressions. He's wanting you and I to understand something about transgressions with his authority. And what is that? The message is that that's something that's given to my heart. That's something my heart knows about. One commentator has observed that the words, this oracle of transgression of the wicked in the midst of my heart, that oracle kind of brought an echo in David's heart. See, David knew the pull of ignoring God. And I think, folks, one of the reasons why David put this in verses 1 to 4 is because we need to acknowledge that the option of ignoring God is an option we've all chosen. Romans 3.18 kind of pointed to it, and then Romans 3.23, I think, underlines it when it says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a choice we've all made. We know this choice. Like every descendant of Adam and Eve, we have done exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. What did they do in those verses? They ignored God, God's word, God's promises. What do you and I do? Apart from Jesus... We ignore God, His Word, and His promises. This is here because this is our option. This is an option choice we've made. And I think David also brought it up, not just because it's like, hey, you've done this, but he's also brought it up, I think, because he wants us to know something about sin, something about transgressions. Okay? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25 says this. Speaking about Moses, okay, Moses is referred to in verse 24 of Hebrews 11. So Moses, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know what? I so wish this was not the case. But the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us that there can be an experience of pleasure with sin. That sin can feel right and good to us. But we need to notice all of verse 25. That pleasure, that sense of satisfaction we think sin's going to give us doesn't last. It's fleeting. It's as if you and I take that sin and we put it in our mouths and in our mouths it's really good. It tastes good. We, we find it enticing. And then it gets to your stomach and you want to throw up. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. But it starts out good. David, I think, wants to make a similar point, makes a similar point at the end of Psalm 36 in verse 12. He's talked about the first option. And then he ends the psalm in verse 12 by saying this, there the evil liar, evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and unable to rise. Folks, if you and I go in the direction of sin, go in the direction of ignoring God, ultimately there's going to be this being thrust down and unable to rise. So David, in a sense, brings up verses 1 to 4 to invite us not to go there, saying, this is where it heads, so don't go there. It's an invitation not to go there. It's also, in a sense, a warning about guarding ourselves about going there. You see, every day, option number one, ignoring God, is going to reach out to us Offering us maybe in a veiled way, but some kind of wisdom, some kind of satisfaction. And that reaching out can happen in a lot of different times in our lives. It can happen when we're hurting. It can happen when we're angry about something. It can happen when we're lonely. It can happen when we feel unappreciated. This reaching out can also come because our, you know, our desires are out of sync with God and reality. I mean, one of the things that scares me about me and scares me about every other person I've met is all of us seem to have in this idea that we know with precision and clarity exactly what we need to give us satisfaction. And yet the reality is we pursue something and we get it. And then we're not satisfied and we move on to something else. It's really easy to do and we can go there. We can also get sucked into this option and not guard against it simply because we live in a culture that promotes and promotes this option repeatedly again and again and again and again. We've been watching this uh, History Channel thing on food that made America or food that made America great. And it's reliving some things because, you know, they, they're, we're at the stage where they, they were talking about the, the, the battle between McDonald's and Burger King. And growing up in the 70s, hearing the slogan, you know, you can have it your way right away. Well, that's a nice, catchy slogan. It's also a veiled version of option one that I can have it the way I want it. It's really easy to get sucked into that and the culture's pushing that and pushing that and it's like, 
I'm just going to embrace that. Or you can say, I'm going to try to stand against it. But sometimes we just get overcome because we're trying to do it by ourselves. This is a warning. This is a challenge. Okay, David doesn't think option one is very good. What about option two? Well, if option one is ignoring God, option two is seek God. Now, to be clear, David does not explicitly say, seek God. What I think David does in the next number of verses is basically he kind of provides motivation, reason why you and I would want to seek God. So instead of going option number one, he's going to paint a picture to say, this is a better option, option two. Verses five and six. Your steadfast love, O God, extends, sorry, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. So David says, hey, you should pursue God. The motivation of David, why he was going to not go to option one, but go to option two, is because of God's incredibleness. And you say, why does David say God's so incredible? Well, he says that because of four true statements he makes about God in verses five and, five and six. Okay, first one, he starts to talk about God's steadfast love. And when we talk about steadfast love, really what we are talking about is God reveals his incredibleness by his deep commitment to his people. That's really the idea of steadfast love. God is so committed to us that he shows his love for us for our benefit, for our good. He just keeps doing that. And this love, it says, is like as high as the heavens, which is not meant to say, well, it's just a heavenly thing. No, it's meant to say that's how vast it is. It goes to the heavens. Then in somewhat of a parallel way, David adds a second truth about God, God's steadfast love, but then he adds faithfulness. See, here's the amazing things. God is incredible because his commitment to us, his expression of steadfast love through his faithfulness keeps going. And it says to the sky. And you think about where does the sky stop? Well, the sky doesn't stop. God's faithfulness doesn't stop. You know, normally, I was telling folks, normally I can get to church on a Sunday morning in six minutes, except today because I had to cross Hamilton. So I think it took me like more like 25 minutes to get here. That was inconvenient. I didn't like that, you know, whatever. But why am I bringing that up? Ragbri's one day here in Sioux City. In the state of Iowa, it's one week. It's not going to last. God's faithfulness does. God's faithfulness does. Verse 6 is going to add the third truth about God's righteousness. Now, the idea of the word righteousness means conformity to an ethical or a moral standard. And when you combine righteousness with God, David is telling us that God always will, always wills what is right, and always does what is right. He knows there's an ethical standard. He is the ethical standard. So he's going to will what's right, and he's going to do what's right. And that righteousness is like big, solid mountains. I mean, just like you and I can't go and kind of push the rocky mountains away, we can't move them. We can't move God's righteousness. We can try to ignore it. People do. But God's righteousness will ultimately prevail. 
Fourth truth about God. Why is he incredible? Because of his steadfast love, because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness, but also because of his judgments. Now, the idea of judgments there is probably referring to, to God governing over everything. Now, when God adds in there, the Holy Spirit inspired David to add great, de- great deep, that's probably suggesting that God is going to govern and do things in a way that we don't always understand. So you and I are not always going to comprehend what God is doing and how God is doing it. And that bothers us a lot of times. But on the authority of God's word and really what this psalm is saying and the rest of the Bible is showing us is God rules and governs out of his steadfast love, which means he's always committed to our good, our benefit, to bring his goodness into our lives. God operates to sustain all of creation so that creation and the people in creation are looked after. Because how does verse 6 end? With God saving man and beast. God keeps this thing spinning and he sustains the earth and that is huge. Now you might be asking, well, great, David's motivated by that, but what does that have to do with us? What difference does that make? Well, David says, look, if you approach life in light of the amazingness of God, the incredibleness of God, so you seek him, there's at least three benefits, okay? Benefit number one is you get God's protection, If you seek God, the benefit in our lives is we would get God's protection. Psalm 36 and verse 7 says this, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind have taken refuge in the shadow of your wings. David believes seeking God is the great approach to life in part because God's our protector. Okay? God has a deep concern for us to be in a safe place, in a warm place, not, in, not exposed to all kinds of problems. God's going to engulf us in provision. That's an amazing gift. Benefit number two, not only does God give protection, but God gives satisfaction. Okay? God's going to bring satisfaction to our lives. Verse 8 of Psalm 36 says this, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Now, the word that's translated abundance in verse 8 means fatness. Okay? Now, fatness in the ancient world, and to one of my children, the fat part of the meat is the best part of the meat. So in essence, what's being told here is when we come under God's protection, God is going to bring to you the best burger you have ever had. It will be amazing. Now, we could say abundance there and go, oh, so that means like I'm going to come to God and he's going to feed me and I'm going to be full. Like I'm going to have enough. I'm going to be satisfied in terms of I'm full. Well, it means that, but it means more than that. You see, the word delights at the end of verse 8 is the word that also gives us the word Eden, as in Garden of Eden. And the imagery of verse 8 adding the rivers is kind of taking us back to this idyllic world that God created before sin entered into human experience. And you've got the rivers of Eden coming together to bless all of creation. More significantly, it's the rivers of Eden bringing blessing and satisfaction to people. 
God wants to bring satisfaction to our lives. He's offering us that. You know, yesterday we had um, two door hangers from guys that are trying to run for president. Actually, one was a door hanger. One was a door hanger handed by a campaign worker. You know, and you read them, and they're making all these great claims. So it sounds really great claim. God's going to protect you. God's going to satisfy you. Well, the issue is, and when you're trying to make a decision who to vote for, the issue becomes, can they deliver on these things? God can. Benefit number three, God is light and life. Life and light. He's going to bring those to our lives. The psalm continues in verse 9 this way. For with you is the fountain of life. In you, your, in your light do we see light. Folks, God can bring the benefits of protection and the benefits of satisfaction because he literally is the source of life. He created this big world. But not only did he create this big world, please understand, he created you. He created you, which is why you matter. It's why every life matters. But God doesn't just create us and then say, well, hey, good luck. You know, kind of like people left today in Ragbright, good luck, you know. See how it goes on the way, up and down all those hills, good luck. That's not how God does things. Because it also talks about God, your light lets us see light. In essence, it's an imagery of God being the one who lights things up so we can see. We are guided by him. We're directed by him. He makes it possible for us to know how to walk in ways so we arrive in his satisfaction. We live in his protection. God can make these things happen. God is offering us a better way. Well, that then raises the question. We've kind of looked at the two options. Now we're at the prayer. And so how do we respond to these options? David's given us the two options. Ignore God, seek God. How should we respond? Well, let me read verses 10 and 11. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. First response, David's calling for two responses. First response he's calling for, I think, is this is he saying, ask God to bring his steadfast love to your life. How should you and I respond? We should ask God to bring his steadfast love to our lives. I want you to think about verse 10 with me. David is praying in verse 10 about people who know God. Now, the idea of knowing God in the Old Testament is really people who love God. So in essence, this is a prayer of David saying, people who love God are praying for his steadfast love in their lives. Now, to back up a little bit, the idea of knowing God and God's steadfast love, those ideas are connected to the biblical idea of us being in a covenant with God. And the biblical idea of covenant implies relationship. Okay, that you can pray verse 10 because you're in a relationship with God, which means behind verse 10, in the background, which makes verse 10 possible, is an implicit command, an implicit call for us to repent. 
See, in the vocabulary of verse 6, when we, Psalm 36, excuse me, in the vocabulary of Psalm 36, we live in option one. That's our default. We need to repent of that and say, God, I do not want to live life ignoring you anymore. I want to stop that. And what I want to do is I want to seek you. I want to know you. And the way we come to know God is through trusting his son, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross in our place for our sins and rose again. So in essence, this verse, this response is about us saying, God, I need you. I want to turn from ignoring you, and I want to turn and seek you. Which in essence, we're saying, God, I want to seek you. We're saying, God, I want to live in fear of you. I want to live in your love. I want to live expressing my love for you because, God, I need you. I cannot do this. Only you can. I need you. I need your steadfast love. That's how we respond, saying, God, I don't want option one. I want option two, which means I want you, and I need you. Second response. It starts there, but the second response, David says, is keep rejecting option one. Keep rejecting it. And here's the thing. If we're going to live out response one of, God, I need you, I'm dependent upon you, that doesn't mean option one stops. That doesn't mean the pressure and all those things around us are going to go away. No, they're still here. Which means the prayer of verse 11 is really a cry of help saying, God, will you help me stand? Will you not let other things take me down? Will you help me stand up and do this? Folks, if we read further in the Bible, in the Ephesians chapter 6, it will tell us that for us to be able to stand in the world we live in, we need the strength of God. And we do that by putting on his armor or basically embracing his resources for our lives. Which means if we're going to respond to these options and we're going to keep rejecting option number one is we need to invest ourselves in God's word. We need to invest ourselves in keeping in step with the spirit in having the resources of God's power in our lives, letting that be the source of our lives. Folks, there is going to be pressure. All of you know that. You may be facing it in different ways. But verse 11 is calling us to approach life, asking, urging, saying, God, help me. Would you lift me up? I mean, just to back up for a second, following option one means we're going to be unable to rise, according to verse 12. It wants to take us down. But we need to understand the prayer of verse 11 is reminding us If we repent of our sins and trust Christ alone, God does lift us up. And not only does he lift us up, but according to verse 11, he's going to do a work in our hearts to make our hearts upright. Let me ask you, what's your approach? What's your approach to life? Go back to those questions. David is calling you to choose your approach to life. That's what Psalm 36 is asking us to do this morning. Which means, I am praying that you will seek God. 
that you will make him, you will make God the focal point of your life because he alone can satisfy you and the longings of your soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. We need you way more than we realize. And I am so grateful to you that you reveal yourself again and again to us in your word repeatedly. Lord, you know there are so many things put in front of us. You know how option one can show up so many ways for us. And we need times like this to see option number two. Maybe, Lord, today for some of us, it's the first time we're seeing option two. Or maybe for some of us, it's the thousandth time. But Lord, we need this option. We need to see it. Lord, we need your steadfast love over us. And Lord, we need you to help us keep rejecting option one. Father, I pray today that we would be choosing to seek you and we would be looking to you for what you bring and offer us in our lives. Thank you for your amazingness. May we turn to you. May we seek you today. In the precious name of the Savior we pray.